Hello, everyone, and welcome to Podcast by Committee on opening day for the NFL. Uh, we are recording this at Dom in the Central Time Zone, so I'll throw it out there, 10 a.m. about Central Time. So we are what, nine or so hours away from Bears-Packers beginning the 2019 season. We are all excited. We know you are excited as well. Different voice coming to you as the host of Podcast by Committee here today. I'm Michael Beller. I'm usually the producer of this podcast, but Nando DeFino out of the office today. So I'm sliding in uh, to the host chair for him. Uh, we're excited about our guest on this episode of Podcast by Committee. Again, we're giving our uh, beat writers the week off, getting ready for week one. And we're welcoming in one of our national writers, Mike Sando, joining us on Podcast by Committee. Mike, thanks for being here. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. Looking forward to another season. Yeah, we are too. We're ready to uh, put all the prognostication behind us. Obviously, we do a lot of that in the fantasy world, and we're ready to actually start watching some real football here. Uh, earlier this week, uh, we talked uh, uh, on this show about things we're excited about week one. We want to carry that forward with you. Uh, teams that you are most intrigued by week one. You and I talked about this earlier this week leading into uh, the show, and I think uh, the one that you listed first and the one that we're going to talk about first is one that a lot of people are intrigued by. Certainly I am. It's the Cleveland Browns. Uh, this is a team that has high hopes, went from almost no hopes to high hopes overnight, just like that with all the changes that they made personnel-wise with this team. It started last year, of course, with Baker Mayfield, uh, but this is a team that uh, a lot of people are excited about this year, both from real life and fantasy perspectives. Uh, one thing you said to me, though, that interested me, and that's where I want to start, is that you're not quite sure, you're not totally sold that we're going to see a monster year from Odell Beckham. Uh, I happen to disagree. I think we're going to see the best year that Beckham's ever had. But I'm wondering what you see from this team that has you uh, maybe a little bit wary of what Odell Beckham's going to bring to the table this season. Well, I just think there's uncertainty. Um, we don't know exactly how great Baker Mayfield is going to be. We think he's going to be great. But we don't know. Freddie Kitchens, you have a good track record on him. And what, what were you thinking of him two years ago? If someone had asked you, what do you think about Freddie Kitchens? You'd have no answer, right? I mean, I think he was with Arizona, right? So Todd Monken even doesn't have a, this long uh, track record as a coordinator. And then you have incredibly volatile personalities. And for Beckham specifically, if you look at Beckham's target share among the wide receivers on his team, it's very consistent. I threw out 2017 because I only played four games. But even then, every year is 16 to 17% of the wide receiver targets on his team. And there's never been anyone like a Landry on his teams. Uh, there's always been, you know, Shepard at 10% or uh, other receivers at maybe 11 or 13%. And now you're going to be playing with Landry, who's always himself been at 14, 15, 16, 19, uh, uh, 17% of shares. So I'm not saying that I don't think – I'm not excited about Beckham. I think he'll have a good year. I think he's a really good player. Would it shock me if he had his best year ever? Uh, of course not, because this could be a really good offense. But um, his best year ever is 1,450 yards. I know he missed one game that year in 2015. If we just look at you know the basic stats, he averaged over 15 yards of reception that year. Are we just guaranteed that you're going to throw out the ball with these coordinators we don't really know a ton about? With a quarterback we don't know a ton about? And in combination with the receiver who gets a lot of targets, maybe two, is it guaranteed that there's enough to go around for him to just be the best he's ever been? 
How much of a risk do you see that uh, the uncertainty with Kitchens and Munkin being for this offense, uh, you know, top to bottom, not just with Beckham, not just with the receivers, but for everyone involved? Uh, we think we know what we're going to get. But like you said, it's neither of these guys is really a known commodity. Yeah, I mean, I'm generally positive on the fact that I mean, I think I think they're going to be fine in calling the games, uh, that sort of thing. It's more of the with Kitchens, it's more of just handling the team. I mean, um, the expectations are off the charts, and they've run with them. They're their big personality team. Their GMs even a big personality relative to other GMs. Uh, Kitchens seems to be a guy who just says what's on his mind half the time. Uh, Beckham says what's on his mind probably more than half the time. Jarvis Landry probably does too. And oh, by the way, do you love their you know do you love their offensive line? So mm-hmm. that to me, it's a broader context. Those two, I don't have any like amazing red flags on how they're going to call the games. I'm generally optimistic like everybody else is. I just, when I hear people say best ever or best ever career year for Beckham, I'm like, hasn't he had some great years? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is this one just, why? so let me, let me flip it around. Why is this year going to be the best he's ever had and not just good? I would say the argument for that is that uh, Baker Mayfield's a, a significant uh, improvement from what he's had for most of the time with the Giants uh, in Eli Manning. And that while Jarvis Landry uh, does certainly probably uh, is likely to command a, a target share larger than anything he shared with uh, with anyone in New York, that he's still Odell Beckham. I mean, I think I, I think you still find a way to get the guy 150 targets almost no matter what. Even when you've got a guy like Landry, even when you've got uh, a running back who's probably going to be a high volume, high usage guy in Nick Chubb, if I was making the argument for Beckham having a you know 110 catch, 1600 yards, 16 touchdown season, it would be that when you have a guy like that, you make him the center of the offense, no matter what else you have around him. So let's just take a look at uh, Beckham's best season, and I'm just going to say. I'm going to say in 2015, he, he missed one game, but 96 receptions for 1,450 yards and 13 touchdowns. The yardage and the touchdowns and the average per catch were the highest of his career. So I'm just going to say, uh, for the sake of this, that 2015 was his best season. Well, in 2015, Eli Manning had 35 touchdown passes, 14 interceptions, 4,400 yards, completed 63%. And I know numbers can lie. Every quarterback in this day and age has decent numbers, it seems. But... Um, we're now saying that Baker Mayfield's going to easily have better than that type of a season. And I'm just saying, hey, covered the league a long time. There's been a lot of offseason excitement over guys. <laughs> and let's just see it before declaring that it's going to be the best ever. I think the potential's there for the best ever. Baker Mayfield could be an all-time great quarterback. Um, he could also not be as good this year when they're not playing with house money and his, his coordinator's not throwing caution to the wind with really nothing to lose. I mean, they were just there were no expectations on the team. They're starting with maybe three of their first five games on prime time. Um, I just think there's a little bit more volatility to it than taking it to the bank. And I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying I would tap the brakes a little bit before declaring it because he's had some great seasons before and Baker Mayfield and, and Freddie kitchens and these other guys haven't had great seasons before. Let's zoom out a little bit and take a look at this team uh, where where you were sort of going with that. Where are you on this team going into the season? Uh, Obviously, the excitement's there. Uh, Do you think this is a 10-win team at the start? Yeah, I think think it probably is. You know, I think my concerns for them are a little bit just more longer term. I think they have to fill out the depth of their team. I think when you have that many 
sort of star personalities that it, you know, there's a potential for some boom and bust. And I questioned the long-term viability of it, including with the head coach who's totally unproven. So as far as this season though, I mean, I'm leaning towards that they're going to be a winning team. Um, I still think there's going to be some adventure along the way. And if I had to, you know, bet my house on who wins that division, the Steelers may just feel like a little bit of a safer bet for me, but uh, Cleveland to me probably does have a winning record. I'm just not, I need to see it before I say they're going to win the division and have 12 wins. I think that's certainly possible, but there's a lot of ways this train can go off the tracks too. Yeah. What are, what are those ways? Well, start off totally inexperienced head coach who, um, we have no idea if he's going to be good at this and he's probably going to be better three years from now than he is now. Um, then you take the personalities of the wide receiver position, just what happens if you lose a couple of games, things go poorly. How do those guys handle it? Are they great at handling it? Is the head coach great at handling the personalities? Andy Reid is. I'd like to have Andy Reid handling that type of thing. Not everybody has Andy Reid. We have totally uh, unproven personnel. Would you have said that, you know, why did they keep Freddie Kitchens? Because they didn't want to disrupt uh, you know, they, they didn't want to disrupt uh, the quarterback. Well, why did the Tampa Bay Buccaneers keep Dirk Cutter? They didn't want to disrupt Winston, right? Is that the best decision-making process to uh, make, you know, to hire your head coach for the long term? Nothing against Kitchens. He may be the next Vince Lombardi. But it's handling a team is a whole new responsibility over the course of a season with great expectations and unusual personalities. Look at Odell Beckham and uh, Jarvis Landry did nothing on the field to earn their exits from where they were at. They were good, good players. Why did their teams decide, you know, for our locker room, for our organization, um, maybe not. And I'm not saying the Giants were right. I'm not saying the Bucks were right or the Dolphins were right. I'm just saying two outside teams made that determination for whatever reason. And we think we know the reason is not because of how they play on the field. So how does all that stuff come together? And, and, you know, also then we talked about their offensive line. Do you like the tackle situation? Is that good for them? You're going to play some good defenses this year. Um, it's not going to be a cakewalk. The uh, the managing personalities point I think is really interesting, and especially since Kitchens is now in his full season, uh, first full season, excuse me, as uh, the head coach here. Uh, how much stock do you put into what he did last year as the offensive coordinator? Obviously, Greg Williams was the guy you know steering the ship in the second half of the season, but Freddie Kitchens seemed to have you know pretty uh, a lot of autonomy over the offense. H- how much do you put into that carrying over into twenty nineteen? Um, I think it's really uncertain because we don't know for sure exactly how much Kitchens was doing, right? Remember, I know there's sour grapes, but one of his other assistants came out, uh, the, the line coach, and said it wasn't him. It was a different assistant coach who's no longer with the team. So uh, I think that all has to be proven over the course of a season. I think he's got great personnel to work with. I think he's probably a good offensive coach. I'm giving some benefit of the doubt there. But uh, what they did last season is totally different than what you're doing right now with all of these expectations, look, we're having a podcast on the NFL season in 2019. Our number one thing we're talking about is the Browns, right? That's totally different than it's been in the past. That's totally different than it's been for Freddie Kitchens. Um, and when you don't have the track record um, and you haven't had to do it under pressure and you haven't had to do it over the course of a full season, 
Uh, I give some stock to what happened, but I think a lot of things are different this year than they were last year for him and for them. Uh, you know, this is a fantasy podcast, and obviously we're gonna we're gonna bounce back and forth between real life and fantasy. But I want to get uh, a little take from you uh, here, uh, Baker, or excuse me, uh, Odell Beckham, Nick Chubb. These guys were both, uh, no matter what league you played in, uh, by time we were all drafting top 12, 15 picks somewhere in there. Uh, which one would you feel better about as the centerpiece of your fantasy team? Oh, that's a great question. Um, wow. Well, centerpiece of fantasy team, I'm probably going to go towards the running back. Um, mm. he, you know, I think that he's going to have a good season. I like the situation. Um, and I think you can get a lot of quarterbacks, <laughs> you know, that are going to have good statistical numbers in fantasy and maybe even comparable to Mayfield. How much, How concerned should we be about uh, Kareem Hunt's return if we are invested in Nick Chubb carrying us to fantasy championships? Um. I'm a little bit concerned, but I think he has a lot to prove over the course of just a, a, a 24-hour day, right? I mean, I, I, he has to prove that he's going to be there tomorrow and tonight and then tomorrow and the week after that. So it's mildly concerning, but I think, uh, um, you know, I'm glad I'm not overly invested in him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I agree. I was, that, was, that was a situation where I was not worried at all about, uh, about Nick Chubb. I think that a, a lot of things happen throughout a uh, fantasy football season, and you worry about Week 10 when Week 10 gets here, maybe when Week 9 gets here. You worry Absolutely. about Week 10. And, and, yeah, and how Chubb plays before then is going to be the biggest variable, right? I mean, if he's healthy and playing well, they're not going to suddenly come in and give half the reps to the other guy. Uh, they may just weave him in. It's a long time. Browns host the Titans in week one. They are five and a half point favorites. Last I saw, I think that feels like a, a fair line. Uh, when we started this uh, conversation leading up to this podcast, Mike, I asked you for some teams you were most interested in watching week one. So what are you most interested in seeing from this Browns team in week one uh, when they host the Titans? Yeah, I think the game's fascinating on both sides. So uh, I want to see just how dominant their defensive line is of the Browns. You know, there's some tackle injury concerns for the Titans that um, I think cannot, you know, they could be overstated, but they need to be mentioned. And um, it's a good opportunity for the Browns at home to really get after, um, you know, a, a unit up front for Tennessee that may not be at full strength going after a quarterback in Mariota who, you know, has a lot to prove himself. So if I'm the Browns, this is a classic example of two teams where, the expectations are complete. The, the buzz factor is completely the opposite, right? I mean, there's no buzz on Mariota. No one's even talking about the Titans. It's all the Texans, Luck, uh, even to some degree Foles. What's he going to bring in Jacksonville? The Titans are just a total blah vanilla sandwich, right? I mean, there's nothing about the Titans that makes you want to buy season tickets to them right now, correct? Yeah. But they're a tough out. You know, they're going to be a tough defense. They're going to be a, probably a hard-nosed team. Mariota was a top-five pick. I mean, you know, he's probably going to be healthier now than he's going to be in week six. Um, no one's talking about them. So, it to me, it's a great opportunity to see, hey, the Browns at home, they're playing this blasé team. Are they going to really roll them by double figures and we're off we go? Or is this going to be a nail-biter game at the end where it's 14-9 to in the third quarter and we're going, oh, yeah, maybe it's maybe you don't win the the AFC North title in August. You know, and I, I think that's a fascinating early matchup. That's a good test. 
yeah, almost like the perfect game for them to have to really uh, uh, test with that, that what happened uh, in the summer and how seriously we should be taking them early in the season. Yeah, and I, like I said, a Tennessee. What do you think Tennessee is going to be? Eight and eight, maybe, right? Yeah, I mean that feels like a best case almost to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think that Tennessee can be, and just talking to to some from, from some other people in that division and other teams. Um, you know, I had a couple of them say, "Just don't sleep on them." You know, as a team that can be better than people expect. Um, again, not an ex- not an extraordinarily high ceiling, but I don't think they're just a complete um, easy out either. And and I, you know, they're going. You know, they've been watching all the press stuff this off season, right? They've been reading about how unbelievable the 2019 Browns are going to be, right? I mean, just unbelievable. This is going to be a juggernaut. It's going to be Odell Beckham's best season ever, right? Yeah. Because everyone's saying it. Well, we'll see. We'll see how that goes in week one. I think it's a great matchup. And if the Browns roll them, hey, more power to them. But to me, it's not surprising at all if it's a closer or harder game. Yeah, definitely one of the games that I will be watching closely in week one. Let's move on to our second team here. It is the Los Angeles Rams. And... Yeah, I, when you when you put it when you pointed them out, I, I started thinking just about recent Super Bowl losers, recent Super Bowls uh, runners up, and for the life of me, I couldn't come up with a team that didn't have a ton of turnover from the year they lost the Super Bowl and got less positive attention in the summer than the Rams did. What are you thinking about this team going into Week yeah. One? Well, they've clearly entered a new era where they've got a paid quarterback, some other paid players, and they weren't just adding a bunch of fun parts from the outside. They're sort of a team that, you know, largely came back uh, intact. But to me, feeling just a little bit more question marks, a little bit potentially diminished. Um, You know, they've got the oldest left tackle uh, in the league. Again, they had him last year. Andrew Whitworth may be just fine, but Andrew Whitworth's declining, right? If you had to say he's the same ascending or declining, what box are you checking? Yeah, I'm checking that third one. Checking declining, right? So Roger Saffold, top 10 guard in the league, you'd say? Maybe mm-hmm. last the way he played last year? Yeah. Uh, not on the team. He's not on the team. Um, Todd Gurley, do you think he's ascending, declining, or the same? I mean that's that that's really the big head scratcher here, both from a real life and fantasy perspective. Um, I if I had if I were forced to pick one, I would lean the same, just yeah. because of the way I think they can manage uh, him. So when he's yep. out there, I think he can be the same guy. Yep. He just maybe can't be out there as much as he was previously. Yeah, you'd say this: Are you as excited, more or less excited about him than you were one year ago? Probably less. Correct. Right. So. Um, you put those factors together, um, independent of the of what we will talk about. I'm sure about just you know how some teams sort of solved them a little bit. I mean, it, look, it's all time great defensive mastermind with two weeks to prepare in Belichick. Mm-hmm. It's the Bears who shut down everybody, uh, but it was also you know Detroit did a nice job on them. So, do we feel better, the same, or worse about McVeigh? Um, McVeigh's offense against the rest of the league. Well, I think I feel worse, but I think that's got a, a little bit more to do with uh, with the quarterback than it does with the coach necessarily. Uh, you feel worse about the quarterback now than you did before? Well, yeah, because of the way things turned uh, after their bye last uh, season. Yeah, yep. So the, those are all vibes that I think we have. We, we intuitively feel all those things that I just spelled out. Mm-hmm. And then we have many months with no games to let those 
sink in and I'm trying to manage all of that and not not put too much or too little into any one of those things, right? Because that happens in the offseason. You just you just imagine Beckham how good he's gonna be. And then by the time the season comes around, they're the they're the they're you know the 72 Dolphins, right? And I don't want to be overselling all of those things that could be issues um, for the Rams, but I feel like they're a team now trying to hold on to what they've done as opposed to a team that's charging to new heights. And um, I think it's hard to stay on the top like that. And whether it is or isn't something to losing the Super Bowl, you know, mm-hmm. um, it hasn't been a great track record. I think it does. You talk, if you were to talk to people who've gone through that, it take it probably take, took something out of them um, a little bit. So uh, I, I'm optimistic about the Rams, but I'm not like wildly excitedly optimistic. I have a few more um, asterisks with them. All right. We got a lot of things to talk about here. Let's start with that Goff McVay relationship and what was so good for them in the first half of the season. What was so good for them in the second half of the season? For me, there were two big things. Number one, uh, two big things that changed. Uh, Obviously so much was made of, um, of, uh, McVeigh being in Goff's ear till the last possible moment and him really being the puppet master over there on the sidelines. Teams learned about that, got wind of that, and started disguising looks and changing things up after the click of the headset goes off and McVeigh no longer is in his ear. That's number one. Number two, Cooper Cup's injury. A, a big blow to this offense. Uh, this re- offense really is one that I think runs very well when everything is in place, but when one guy's taken off the uh, off the chessboard, things change for them. So how how much are we looking into both of those things at the start of the 2019 season? Well, number one, just big picture. I feel great about Goff and McVay. You know, I think the key to having a good team for a long time is to have a good head coach and a good uh, quarterback together. And so uh, I'm not one of these people who says, God, wouldn't it be cool if they just let Goff go and brought in another young quarterback and tried to win that way? No, I feel like, you know, Goff's a good quarterback for what they want to do. He's a good quarterback, period. And, uh, and McVay's a good coach. So I feel really good about that pairing for the long term. I, I'm excited about it. I think that's going to, the Rams are going to be successful over time for that. And you can't, you can't discount the fact that last year, you know, they were 2-0 against the team that had Russell Wilson, right? They beat the team that had Aaron Rodgers, right? They beat in the playoffs, the team that had, uh, that had uh, Prescott. Uh, yeah. And uh, Drew Brees, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. so they beat the team that had Patrick Mahomes, right, during the season. So, um, you know, from a, I give the quarterback and head coach of the Rams a lot of credit for their ability to do that. So I do feel good about it. I'm with you on, you know, I think, uh, I think that every offense is better when you you've got it rolling and you're ahead of your opponent. Every one of them is, and it gets a lot harder when you're behind. Um, but I think they're really a team that feeds to a greater degree off the advantages and being at, you know, ahead and being balanced. I think they're, they're a very managed offense. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the coach being in, in Goff's ear before the snap. It's just that the nature of that whole offense and reliance on play action is we're not putting it in our quarterback's hands as much. And so when you have to put it in the quarterback's hands, you know, when you're behind, play after play, um, I think we notice just how big the difference is. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily worse at it than any other team would be, 
but I think they're so good at managing the situation when it's in their favor, you know, sort of when the cards are, when the cards are in their favor, they're making the big bets and they're winning at the blackjack table. Right. Um, but it's really hard for everybody when um, the cards aren't there. And I feel like because they're so good when the cards are in their favor, we notice it more with them. And we're reminded sometimes that they're just like everybody else uh, when it's not going well. And it's very different. You got Cooper Cup coming off the injury. You got Todd Gurley dealing with the knee. And so I think they could face some of these very real injury concerns uh, early on this season that hurt them at the end of last year. How much do we have to worry about that uh, before we see it, or I guess maybe even after we see it in week one? How much does that have to be in our heads and in Sean McVay's heads? And how much could it alter what they do offensively? Yeah, I, I see my head a little bit, but I, but not a ton because I think when you look at their receiving core, you know, um, they don't just have one guy who's awesome and then a bunch of sporting guys. I feel like their talent is pretty well distributed through. You, know, you may not say that Brandon Cooks, you know, or Robert Woods or a healthy Cooper Cup. You, you you're probably not going to say that any one of those guys is a top five wide receiver, right? I mean, if we just did your list, but they're all like in the top what, 15 or something? You know what I mean? They're they're all, all three of them, there's no one guy who's really low. And so I feel good about the distribution of their receiving core. I feel good about their ability to use those guys. Um, it's interesting. When McVeigh first got there, I think ideally they would have been a 12 personnel team with two tight ends. That, that That's what he'd like to do, but their personnel was so three wide receivers. So to me, I'm interested a little bit in just seeing how the evolution um, of their res- wide receiver usage goes because you couldn't have been higher than them as a three receiver team, right? I mean, they were 11 personnel every play. I think that's because of who they had. I don't think at all it's because that's what Sean McVay thinks he wants to be. And so that can only go one direction over time, you know, and it's going to be away from three receiver 99% of the time. And so that that's one little thing in the back of my mind with them, but I, I like the receivers. They need to make a personnel change to make that work? Well, Yes. Well, you mean if you go to if you play twelve personnel, obviously somebody comes off the field. So right. Right. That, but I mean, I mean, just what's available to them right now. I mean, they signed Higby to the extension this morning. Um, yeah. But I mean, can you can you make it? If can you make twelve work with Higby and Gerald Everett? <laughs> um, I don't think you can at the expense of those three receivers over the course of a full season. I think Everett um, is interesting, you know. And when I was previewing the Super Bowl, um, you know, there were some people who thought his. You know, speed was definitely worth watching, but I feel like if Cup is healthy and and those those three guys are going to be among their three best targets, so they're going to be out there, and it's going to be more of the same with eleven. But I, I do think over time that, like I said, that can only go one direction. What are you looking for out of the backfield with uh, with Gurley and Daryl Henderson? Um, I think it will be more managed, and I think there's a real opportunity for Henderson to show um, something. Um, I still think that Gurley's going to be uh, the main guy. I'd be nervous. Like in a fantasy draft, I'd be nervous if I picked him. I just would. I I feel like that can only go in one direction, and I don't feel 100% sure that he's going to play in every game. I think there could be times where it flares up and he's a game-time decision. I just do. It just felt that way late in the year for them. It was a bigger question mark um, you know, than, it, than I thought it was going to be going down the stretch. So Henderson is interesting to me. I do think the fit is really good. I do think there's potential there. I think people were maybe overselling what he could do early in the offseason as people were extremely worried about Gurley. 
And now as the season comes along, I think there could be a tendency to say, oh, Gurley will, will be fine. I had a good conversation with uh, an analytics director for an NFL team uh, who I talk with regularly. And we were just going through all the teams. And he thought that Henderson had some Kamara-type potential to flash in that offense. And we shall see. I don't think anyone's saying he's going to do what Kamara did for the Saints as a rookie. But uh, I th- what I'm saying is I think there's the potential there for him to really, um, you know, grab our attention and carve out uh, a role that, you know, by definition probably could help them manage Gurley a little better, right? Yeah, I think so. I think And, and I think it, that's a stated goal of theirs as well. Yeah, so I'm excited about him, Henderson. I'm, you know... I check the box of less excited about Gurley than I have been in the past. <laughs> if you had to make a bet right now, uh, what the backfield touch breakdown is between those two guys and Malcolm Brown will work in obviously, but you know, just putting him to the side, just between Gurley and Henderson, if you, if you take a hundred percent of the, of the total that Gurley yeah. and Henderson combined for, how much are you giving to Gurley and how much are you okay. giving to Henderson? Well, let's ask this question because you're going to be more likely to know this than me because of your fantasy expertise is what was the percentage for Gurley last season in uh, general? It was, it. I mean, 80 something. It was, yeah. a, it was a monster touch share. One of the most. Yeah. So, the so wouldn't, yeah. Wouldn't you say that it's got to come down into the seventies? Yeah. I, w- I would say it would probably be even more. Yeah. I would. Yeah, I, yeah. I would guess we're we're talking almost like a like a two to one shares where it's like sixty six sixty five yeah, yeah sixty six thirty three that totally makes sense to me um, and then okay when that happens to a back then what does that mean for his uh, production again something you're probably <laughs> you probably study that closer than I do in terms of okay so if what did what did Gurley have let's just let's just look at Todd Gurley's season last year right and I'm mm. you're gonna hear me typing. I need to see. I needed to actually just see the numbers in front of me. But so last season, Todd Gurley is at what? He played 14 games. Wow, he's close. 1,250 yards. He's getting 256 touches. So I don't know that the 256 touches comes down a ton to you mm-hmm. for for carries, but um, maybe he's a little bit closer to an 1,100 yard season. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense. What's that like? Seventeen touches per. You said he played fourteen games, so that's about seventeen touches per game. Yeah, and then he also had close to sixty receptions. So, so he had three hundred. Let's say last year he had he had three hundred and ten in fourteen games. Right, that mm-hmm. was his that was his total touches. So, I can type okay. this in equals three fourteen. <laughs> so that's twenty two touches a game. Yeah, yeah equals. Yep. Yep. You're good. 22.4 touches per game. So 22 <laughs> touches per game. So are we talking about him now being at 16, 17? I mean, I, I find it hard to believe. And I think, what, yeah, no, no, I think that, I think that's fair, but I think what it could be also, and this is where it gets really dicey for fantasy players is that they could just say, uh, Todd's not playing today. Uh, we're giving him a week off. You almost, almost treat him like totally. a baseball player. And, totally. and we're just going to run with Henderson and Brown. And you're not going to. And the worst thing about it is that with them being a West Coast team, you're not going to know about it until four o'clock on the East Coast till you've had to make your early game decisions. Yes. And for his career, he's played four seasons. He's played 16 games once. So he played 13 as a rookie, mm-hmm. uh, 16, 15, and 14. So, 
Yeah, what's the over under on games played for him? Is probably about thirteen, right? Yeah, I think, I think 12, thirteen and a half. half. Yeah, 13, 12, 12 and a half, thirteen. And, half. and like I'm that, always so. worried about guys who uh, who have leg injuries going back to college, like he does. Him, Leonard Fournette, guys like that. Absolutely, and that was one of the that actually early in his career. You know, um, the there's I heard something from some, someone in medical community type person talking about you know the nature of the surgery that he had relative to the ones that other ones had, you know, we were wondering if it, if he was at a higher risk for re-injury and you know what, he's, he's made it through pretty good, but that knee's not getting better and <laughs> the risk is probably getting higher. Yeah. Knees rarely improve over time. No matter if you're in your twenties, thirties, fifties, whatever, knees are generally getting worse. I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We can probably talk the Rams forever, but let's uh, move on to the last team we want to hit on. And I like that we're ending with this team because uh, again, it's another team that didn't get a ton of attention in the summer for for what they for what they have on on the field. And here we are, uh, Thursday night. We've got Bears Packers hundredth anniversary Soldier Field. It's going to be a great game, a fun game, it's most storied rivalry in NFL history. But then there's this third team in the NFC North, in the Minnesota Vikings, that you know. And just uh, you know, my anecdotal um, observations of uh, predictions people are making uh, across the uh, across the internet in terms of who's going to win divisions seems like the Vikings are getting more love than either the Bears or the Packers uh, to win the NFC North. I've been seeing I've been seeing that too, and it almost scares me. So early in the off season, heck, it was before I was even at the Athletic. I was still at ESPN.com, and we were asked, uh, you know, pick your Super Bowl teams, and this was maybe I don't know. March or something. And I picked uh, Chiefs over Vikings. And I thought I was being clever, just sort of, I wanted to pick one team, like the team I thought the best chance. And I wanted to sort of like, not just pick the team that was there last year or whatever, you know? And mm-hmm. and so I went to Vikings and I feel like they get Kubiak, you know, we got some Dalvin Cook excitement. Um, and I feel like more and more people have just sort of slid over to that. And maybe that's, now I'm the one like raising the red flags. Wait a minute. What about this? What about that? You know what I mean? And I, I do think they're going to be a good team, but I think they're a combustible team. I, I think they're a team that is at the end of their life cycle a little bit. You know, I, I think it's Mike Zimmer's so intense. It's like North Turner quit during the season. They went, they burned through another coordinator last year. It is a tense situation. I'm talking with my teeth, you know, shut right now. It's a tense situation of the kicker. My gosh. And, and you know if Kirk Cousins throws two picks in the first game, Mike Zimmer can't help himself. He's not going to be out there like Andy Reid would, just, hey, he's our guy, you know, everyone has a bad day. He's going to be like, yeah, it'd be nice if we didn't throw two picks. And so I feel like there's a great roster, a balanced roster. There's great potential there. They could be a team that goes deep, but I'm a little nervous for them too. How how do you see uh, Gary Kubiak's influence uh, coming into this offense? Okay. Obviously, this was a, yeah. this was a group that was you know all over the place last year offensively, and John DeFilippo did not work out with Mike Zimmer. So, what's the Kubiak influence here? Yeah, I think it's it's really positive. You know, I feel like Kevin Stefanski already started to do at the end of last season what Kubiak would have done, and that is put Kirk Cousins under center a little more. You know, involve more of a play action game, true play action where, you know, you're under center and and there really is the full volume of your run game is available to you, um, which it isn't when you're in the shotgun for the most part. Um, I think they were going that direction anyway. And I think Kubiak uh, enhances that. I think he's uh, a good chemistry guy. I don't think he's going to come in and step on Stefanski's toes. I think he he's 
just a you know a mature coach, a great influence with a system that's proven to be helpful for quarterbacks who are not great quarterbacks. And Kirk Cousins is not a great quarterback, right? He's a managed quarterback. He's a win-with quarterback. So I think this is a win-with system. It's for your win-with quarterback, right? We can see guys, uh, you know, in the system who aren't great having some success. So I like it. I like it for their offensive line probably too, uh, you know, because of the the boot and the different actions, excuse me, um, for them. So it's positive to me. So is this Dalvin Cook's offense as much as an offense belongs to a running back in the year 2019? You know, I think it is because, like I said, uh, it's a managed offense for the quarterback. I think they want to be they want to be more of a a running team. Obviously, Mike Zimmer is an old school defensive coach who's going to want to shorten the game and play that way. I don't think they have. You know, I think they like Kirk Cousins, but they're not just in love with Kirk Cousins. They don't want. They're they're a little nervous the more times he's got the ball in his hands. So I think they will trend that way. Now they still have. Um, you know, good wide receiving core. I think if you were to rank the top five receiving cores in the league, the Vikings would get a mention, right? I mean, they'd be somewhere in there. Oh, without question. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, there's some other teams with good ones, but um, I think they're still going to have production in the passing game. But I think that Cook is going to be um, a big part of it and a bigger part of it than a back has been there and probably a bigger part of it than most backs are in most places. Fingers crossed. Hope he stays healthy. Yeah, that, that, that's the natural next question. Uh, we just talked about Todd Gurley. Uh, we had a little mention of Leonard Fournette. This is another guy who has injury concerns going back to his college days. Uh, what happens? I mean, is it the Alexander Madison show if Dalvin Cook goes down? <laughs> yeah, I had a great conversation last night with a coach that I know. And we, I was just, I don't know what made me think of it. I was like, think of just think of what Eric Dickerson looked like as a running back. He was six foot three, 227 pounds, completely different era, but completely different than the way running backs look now. I mean, he's just an absolute, there's never been a, there hasn't been another guy like him since he played. And that's what we're dealing with here is it's not Eric Dickerson in the backfield. It's not 1989. It's not 1985. And um, I think Cook still has to prove that he can do it over the course of a season. And um, I do, I do have, some um, worries about him being able to do it. And I think in this day and age, even if you have, even if you have Mike Zimmer, you're still going to pass the ball um, a fair amount. And if something happens to cook, you know, yeah, I think they drafted the guy. Uh, they drafted Madison in the third round for a reason. And he's going to get, he's going to probably be the guy. Uh, you mentioned the that the Vikings do have one of the best uh, receiving cores in the league. I think that goes without saying. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. Uh, but I, there was a little bit of concern in the fantasy community about them being overdrafted because of the Stefanski and Kubiak influence, and because of this team, you know, trending more in the direction of the run. Uh, the last three games, they were one of the most uh, of last season. That is, uh, they were one of the most run heavy teams in the league and you still had Adam Thielen going as about the 10th wide receiver in a typical fantasy draft and Stefan Diggs going as about the 14th. Yeah. I don't think anyone would argue with that from a, from a talent standpoint, from what those guys can do uh, when they're given ample opportunity. But are, is this going to be an offense that gives those two guys a combined you know, 260 targets like it did a year ago? You know, I think that it could be. So last season, if you just take a um, percentage of targets among the wide receivers, it was Diggs at 17% rounding up, Thielen at 15, and Aldrick Robertson at 14. 
Well, is there going to be a guy this year that's going to be at 14? You know what I mean? Is there going to be a guy with that big of a target share among the wide receivers for the Vikings? You probably know this better than me. But... Yeah, no, I, w- I would say unlikely, and even Kyle Rudolph might not be that high. Yeah, so for me, I think it just probably solidifies those two guys, and they're going to get maybe a little bit higher percentage of the pie. And let's, let's just say they you know, are a little more balanced offensively. I think that's fair to say. I think early downs, they're going to run the ball probably more than they did, um, certainly under um, – uh, DeFlippo last year. So yet those two receivers could have a higher percentage of a small receiving pie and j- do just fine. You said right off the top of this uh, Vikings discussion that you had them uh, thinking you were going to be all uh, different as uh, the <laughs> NFC representative in the, uh, in the Super Bowl. So I guess first I'll ask, do you have them winning the North still? And do you have them still playing in the Super Bowl? You know, it's a tentative. It's a more tentative one. I, I do like Chicago. I don't want to write off Chicago and just be a contrarian. Um, I do think the Vikings are going to be right there. I think that, uh, you know, if I had to pick one, I may still lean towards the Vikings. I think there could be some regression for Chicago as a team that, you know, kind of like the Rams. They they've done their building up of their roster a little bit, and now they're just playing playing it out as a little bit of the same team. Um, and I have some question marks with Trubisky, so. Uh, I may, I may lean. It still feels a little contrarian, you know, that I would lean a little bit towards Minnesota. I think it's close, and I don't really know what to make of where Green Bay is going to be, you know, or even how bad or Detroit's going to be. I, I don't think I necessarily know. So, if I had to pick a, you know, Super Bowl team in the NFC, I, I think, you know, I'd probably lean towards the Saints right now, just as a little bit safer. Have some questions on them, but um, would you? Or you know, does it feel? It feels like a little bit of a stretch to me to take Minnesota all the way through the Super Bowl. I, what I worry about a little bit is I just think that those three teams at the top of the North are all going to be, even if not all three of them are making the playoffs, even if the North doesn't hog the wild card spots, that th- there's not a bad team in the division. Like you could easily slip up. I, like I could, Minnesota could be a good team and somehow go two and four in the North. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that too. Yep, that 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 does concern me as well. Now I think for the Saints, you know, this this. I all, I don't feel the same, but I feel like Atlanta could be good, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I do feel better about the Saints' ability to get there, and uh, so I would not have Minnesota. You know, if I was forced to bet, I think it's a fun pick to make. When you make yeah. picks, you make picks, and then no one asks you about them. You know, there's two guys <laughs> on Twitter who ask you six months later when they dig it up. But um, for the most part, it's free to ask them, right? Now, if you had to, if you said, Mike, you've got to bet, um, you know, a thousand dollars on it, I'm I'm going to take the Saints. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, that's a fair answer, definitely. Um, since you mentioned the Falcons, why don't we uh, wrap up this discussion with that week one matchup? To me, one of the most, another one of the very most exciting matchups in week one and one of the most intriguing that I could see going a number of different directions. What are you looking for in that Vikings-Falcons week one matchup? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think there's a lot of interesting, of course, any sort of football feels good. Uh, <laughs> good point. You know, at this time of the year. But what's interesting to me about it is that it's in Minnesota. I think that's tough for Atlanta. Um, I think that the Vikings playing at home um, are going to win the game. Um, I just think that's hard to do. And I, I like the Falcons, but I don't just have complete faith in them to be consistent every week and win um, that type of game. So um, I'm looking for a good game, but I'm definitely going with the home team. I am with you there. And I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, a matchup between those two teams. Two teams, I feel like that could be a pretty fun offensive game with those two oh, teams getting totally. together. Yep. Yep, I agree. I think it's a great offensive game. I love the receivers in the game. I think, you know, the quarterbacks are good enough. Um, Just know when you go into that building and you hear that horn, you know, Uh (laughs) start hearing that horn about three times in the first half, you're like, oh, that's not good. Right, right. 
in for a long <laughs> afternoon. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on Podcast by Committee. This was great, great info on the Browns, on the Rams, on the Vikings, and a little bit else as well. So thanks for uh, thanks for translating your uh, NFL expertise into uh, the fantasy world over here. This was a great time, and enjoy week one. We finally made it. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, listeners out there, uh, please uh, rate and uh, review this show. Uh, again, uh, most of our podcasts are uh, free now for you, so uh, keep checking those out. We do have some subscriber-only podcasts, so uh, if you want to sign up for those, we've got a uh, deal going, theathletic.com slash podcast expansion, get you 40% off, so be able to get some subscribers-only podcasts as well, and of course, access to all our great writing from all our graders across all sports, including our guest here, Mike's. Sando. Thanks for listening. Enjoy week one, everyone.